Okay, so great to have all of you guys here to worship together. Um, just a quick announcement, but we have a very special um, outreach this summer. So last summer, as you guys know, most of you, we went to Malawi. Uh, we look forward to going back to Malawi next year. It's going to be an every other year missions. I'm also currently uh, talking to a mission coordinator for a new destination, so you're going to hear more about that in the future. So I'm very excited to uh, send teams out to other destinations as well, at least one more next year. But for this year, we're not going to be going overseas, but rather we're going to be doing a local outreach right here in downtown Riverside. And so I just wanted to talk about it very briefly, but we're going to be taking signups starting today. But starting um, from now until I think the last week of June, we're going to be taking signups, volunteers, in order to do outreach to two different groups of people right here in our downtown area. But if you look around as you come to church, you'll notice that we do have a lot of homeless people in this downtown area, transient people living on the streets. So that's one population. And another population are the dear seniors who live right next door, and we have a number of them who do come through our church. So we wanted to really reach out to both of those populations this summer. And so without going into too much detail, uh, we're still in the planning process, but we do hope to have in the month of July, weekly meetings with the homeless. We're going to invite them to a lunch. We're going to prepare for them. We want to have Bible studies with them every Saturday, once a week in July on the life of Jesus, provide care packages, resources on things like medical, um, shelter, job placement, things like that. But we wanted to do an outreach to the homeless in July. And then in August, we were going to, uh, or we we're planning to reach out to the seniors. And so these are the people next door, we wanted to have a summer study or a community group with them, and we're going to invite people from the church to join, but we're going to have it right in the senior uh, living facility with them, and we're going we're gonna to also do a drive. Uh, we did this, I think, two years ago, but a drive to donate a lot of different things that they are in need of, things like toiletries and uh, canned goods and different items like bottled water. So anyway, these are some things we're planning to do. So if you are interested, if you want to get involved this year, uh, in our reach, right there, reach 2023, right here in local Riverside, then sign up. You're going to get the email. Like Anson said, if you don't get our emails, then please fill out a connect card. If you're joining us online, fill out a connect card online, and you can sign up, by the way. Okay? If you have any questions, you can ask me or, um, yeah, talk to me for now. <laughs> the other leaders might not know as much information. So, Okay, that is it. Open up your Bibles to Daniel 3, 1 through 19. Open up your Bibles to Daniel 3, 1 through 19. And if you're joining us here in person, you'll see the passage on the screen behind me. If you're joining us online, you'll see it on your screen at home. But Daniel 3, 1 through 19. This is God's word. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and his breadth six cubits. To convert that to feet, it is 90 feet tall and then nine feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, 
You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Verse 9. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Okay, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we give you all the glory. And Lord God, thank you for that time of worship. And thank you that you are always here with us. And thank you for your word now, Lord. You are the one we worship. You are the one we serve. And so, Lord God, have mercy. Be gracious to us. And Lord, speak to us. Speak to us through your word. And show us your heart for us, your will for our lives. And help us, Lord God, as we strive by your grace to obey, to follow. So, Lord God, we thank you for this time. Be with everyone here joining us online. Be with even those who may be away on this long weekend. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, praise God. Well, today we are continuing our series on being disciples at work. And, of course, by now you should know, when I say work... Work encompasses more than just a nine-to-five job away from the home, but it can be any real work that we're engaged in. So, for example, remote work from home. A lot of us began to do that during COVID. Running a business, being a student, homeschooling children, doing acts of service as a retired person. All of this is real work. And we've been looking at, from the book of Daniel, how can we interact in our faith with work? How can our faith powerfully begin to shape our work? So that's been the question throughout this entire series. And we've been looking at the book of Daniel for the answers. And this is no no small matter. This is not a small issue because work will occupy 
more than a third of our waking life. I know that sounds a little depressing, but that's the truth. You're going to spend the majority of your waking hours at work. And as much as 84% of Christians today, according to one study, have no clue how their faith interacts with their work. And yet, as we've seen from the book of Daniel, faith in the living God powerfully shapes the work we do. Amen? It powerfully shapes it. So for example, it shapes the way we see God working through our work. So we've talked about that. It shapes the way we approach the challenges at work, even the reasons why we work. All of this is affected and shaped by our faith. So last week, we saw how stories powerfully shape why we work. So we looked at stories. And every day when we say to ourselves, I have to go to work, I have to work today, there's a story behind that statement. Okay, we're not just saying these things in a vacuum. Yes, at one level, you say that because you have to go to work. You're scheduled, your boss is expecting it. But behind that statement, there is a story. And like any story, there's a certain way you believe things should be, but you see problems that are hindering you from getting that thing, and so we're seeking out a solution to that problem. And more often than not, that solution to that problem is work. So what am I talking about? So when you say, I have to go to work today, maybe your story is, you know what, I want a certain level of security in my life, maybe a certain lifestyle. That's how things should be. But right now, I'm struggling financially, so that's the problem. So then when you say, I have to work today, that's your solution. That's the solution in your mind. Or maybe your story is a little different. You, you have this identity in your work. So you want, to be, you want to feel good about who you are. That's how things should be. But right now, you don't feel too good about yourself because work hasn't been going too well. That's the problem. So now when you say, I have to go to work, that's a whole different solution to a different problem, right? And so when we say, I have to work today, there is a story that we are telling ourselves. And there are many, many other stories I'm not mentioning. And they're never verbalized, they're usually subconscious. We're not even aware of these stories day to day. And yet, they direct our lives. Last week, I talked about how these stories are like operating systems on your laptop. The moment you flip it on, you don't even see it, you don't even hear it, but it's quietly in the background directing how everything works. Okay, everything you do on your laptop is being directed by that operating system. So stories are like that in our lives. They powerfully shape our work, why we work, our motivations to work, our goals for work. And usually, these stories have nothing to do with God, right? That's not an amen, but they have nothing to do with God. So God in his mercy steps in and confronts us with his story, which is the gospel of the kingdom. So this is review from last week. But God will confront us with his story. And so this is exactly what we saw with Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. But Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, and he came and destroyed Jerusalem, took many of the nobility, the upper-class Israelites, away to Babylon. Daniel and his friends were among them. And in the second year of his reign, this pagan king was confronted by God. But Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And this dream was a story of the gospel of God's kingdom. This is the dream that he had. And prior to that dream, Nebuchadnezzar, he had his own story. He had his own narrative in his mind of all the things he had done, of all the great work he had accomplished. And so you see that in Daniel 4.30. Nebuchadnezzar one day climbed up on the top of his balcony in his palace and said, is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power 
as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. So very clearly, he had this narrative going in his head. And so that was his story about his work, and then God confronted him. Amen? God confronts us. He confronted him with a very different story. And so God appears in this dream, and basically God said, no, Nebuchadnezzar, your story is not right. Here's the true story. You are like a statue with a head of gold. You are that head of gold, and your kingdom will not last forever. After you will come other great kingdoms, empires, and each empire to come one after another will be less in glory, and it will be weaker in its constitution, until finally the last kingdom appears, which will be terrifying but brittle, the most brittle of all. So these are the kingdoms of men. So God is telling this different story. They are decreasing in value. They are weak in their constitution, and they are brittle in his foundation. And then God doesn't end there. But then he says, and I will bring judgment on the kingdoms of man by the coming of my kingdom. So God talked about a stone cut not by human hands, cleaving off a mountainside, flying into the statue, striking it at the foundations at his feet, and it crushes the statue into pieces. And then the stone grows into a large mountain that fills the entire earth. So that was God's story. He revealed it to this pagan king. And then God basically was implying, if everyone who places their hope in me, if they will receive this kingdom, then you will be a part of a kingdom that will last forever. And so this was God's story. It was a very different story than the one Nebuchadnezzar had. So it was a story of God's gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. It was a story that was simultaneously of God's judgment and God's grace. If we can receive it, receive this kingdom. And so God, he confronted Nebuchadnezzar with a very different story, a true story, an exceedingly better story. And this is what God does in our lives as well. Because again, going back to that statement, I have to work today. When every, every day when we say that, there's a story running behind that statement. And it might have nothing to do with God, and then one day God will come and he will confront us with his story. And so God, out of his mercy, confronts us with his word, with trials, with sleepless nights. And he does it in order to trouble us. And we will get troubled. It'll be very troubling. When Nebuchadnezzar had his dream, he was very troubled by it. But God troubles us in order to transform us. Amen? He will transform us. And so at the end of Daniel chapter 2, it looked like Nebuchadnezzar had changed. He was transformed. And so look at Daniel 2.47. Nebuchadnezzar declared, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Basically, Daniel was able to tell the king what the dream was and interpret it for him. He was very troubled by it, didn't understand it. So praise God, Nebuchadnezzar looked like a changed man. End of story, right? No, I wish human beings were that simple, but they're not. So now we come to chapter three, and the story picks up, and this is what happened. Nebuchadnezzar took that story of that statue about God's kingdom, the gospel of his kingdom. This was a revelation from God. So Nebuchadnezzar took that story and that statue, and he turned it into an idol, right? He turned it into an idol. So today, because of Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to look at idols in the workplace. So this is exactly what happened to the Jewish exiles that were working for him there. 
but he turned this statue from this dream into this monstrosity, this idol. And so in Daniel chapter 3, we get a glimpse of the nature of idols and the danger of idols, and then finally the shattering of idols. But there is a lot that we can glean here about the idols, especially in the workplace. So first, the nature of idols. If you look at Daniel 2, 31 through 32, it says, you saw, O king, this is Daniel talking, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and his appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold. So Daniel here is describing the dream, right? The statue. And then what did Nebuchadnezzar do? Look at chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar then made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and his breadth 6 cubits, 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And everyone who worked for Nebuchadnezzar was then required to come before this monstrosity, this gigantic idol, and then worship it. So this is what happened right after chapter 2. So from the very beginning of this chapter, we see that there are two great realities we face at work. The first one is the one true God. That is the first great reality. If you are a believer sitting here today, then you have God living in your life. You are in a covenant relationship with God. And because he is with you, he goes with you to work. He is working through you. He is working through your work. So that's the first great reality. But there's a second reality. is idols. That's the second great reality of your workplace, is idols. And many Christians are not aware of this first reality and even less of the second reality. But every day when you walk into work, you're going to be walking into a world of idols, a world of idols. You can't walk more than 10 feet without encountering an idol at your workplace. You can't even talk with someone for 10 minutes without encountering an idol. When Paul, he walked through Athens in Acts 17, 16, it says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, and he saw that the city was full of idols, full of idols. And so idols are everywhere. This is the clear testimony, consistent testimony of scripture. Everywhere you go in the world, you will see idols. And they don't fill only cities, but also the workplace. So this was the reality for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But what are idols? Okay, why are they so pervasive? Well, we talked about this before, so some of this will sound like review. But idols are counterfeit gods. You know, in the book, No God But God, which is really a collection of essays, I like their definition. But they define an idol as something within creation that is inflated to function as a substitute for God. I'll read that again. Something within creation, an idol is something in creation that is inflated to function as a substitute for God. So that's amazing. But basically, from scripture, we learn idol is something that a creature, human beings, okay, we are part of this creation. We take something else in creation, and then we make it as important and as valuable as God. Okay, that is what an idol is. So whatever we should receive from God, whether it's peace, joy, fulfillment, salvation, we have now taken something from within creation, and we are also from creation. But we take this thing, this created thing, and then now we are looking to that for whatever God should give us, whatever we should receive from God. So functionally, these created things, they are like God to us. They function like God to us. 
You know, Tim Keller, he recently passed away. Um, man, he spoke so much on this, so helpful. But he had this very simple definition that captured this meaning very well. But he said an idol is a good thing that has become an ultimate thing. It's a good thing that has become an ultimate thing. And what he meant by that is it's a thing that makes life worth living. I almost said amen. It's not an amen. But that's what an idol is. It makes your life worth living when you have it. And when you lose it, you want to die. It's become ultimate. It's anything we hope in. It gives us our greatest meaning, our greatest satisfaction, our greatest joy in life. Again, this is just a creative thing. And the human heart is so desperate for these things, these things we can only get from God. It is so desperate for the salvation these things offer that it'll literally latch onto anything that promises to give them to us. That's what an idol is. Our hearts are constantly doing this. See, there are blessings and things that God offers us, and yet we don't have them, and so we are looking constantly in creation to get these things. This is why John Calvin called the human heart an idol-making factory. The human heart can't stop. We are constantly doing this. So people will make virtually anything into an idol. We've heard this, we know this, but their children, their spouse, their career, their IQ, their religion, their business idea, their moral record, their degree, even their bodies, the way they look, their pets. They'll make anything into an idol. This is why Paul said in Romans 8.23, humanity exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, and animals, and reptiles. You know, when I read that and I see Paul getting to reptiles, first of all, that was a fact. In ancient times, people turned reptiles into statues and worshiped them. But when Paul said that, I believe he's saying literally anything can be an idol. Reptiles, really? A frog? A snake? You can turn anything and make it function like a God in your life, a source of life and salvation itself. But these are not just crazy people turning their cats into idols. We're not just talking about people way out there. But idols are usually the best things in life. So usually the most noble, the best among us, they are the worst idolaters. But why are idols usually the best things in life? Well, it's because the more good and noble something is, the more promise it holds to give us the blessings and salvation that we are desperately wanting, right? right? You don't look at something stupid or a piece of trash and go, oh, I'm going to worship that. that. That offers you nothing. But people offer, rather, they worship their children. They worship their spouses, their religion, and yes, even their careers. Why? Because they hold the most promise. Okay, everything that nourishes my soul that I should be getting from God, and many of these people don't even know God, I think I could get it here or here. And these are the best things. So this was Nebuchadnezzar. He did not take something ridiculous, frivolous, and turn that into an idol. Although, of course, plenty of that happens as well. But what did Nebuchadnezzar turn into an idol? This is amazing. But he took a dream that God gave him, literally an encounter with the living God. And he took a feature of that dream, the statue, which was a part of God's gospel story, the gospel of the kingdom, And he turned that into an idol. He turned the most life-changing experience he had, and he turned that into an idol. So look how subtle that is. Look at the the shift in his heart. It's very subtle. Now, there's an entire message we can hear on that, but how many Christians and churches have received the glorious gospel, and then with the most subtlest shift in their heart, they take a part of that gospel, maybe it's God's grace, maybe it's intimate relationship with him, and they turn that into an idol. Well, this is basically Nebuchadnezzar. 
This is very subtle. Taking the best things in life. But here's the point I, I want us to really get. But we need to recognize when we are the most susceptible to idols. Okay, when are you the most vulnerable? Now, everyone is susceptible to idols at every level, at any point in your life, for sure. But when you're at work, when are you the most susceptible to idols? Isn't it when you're climbing higher and higher at work, when you're getting more and more success, when the good becomes amazing, right? Isn't this when you're becoming more and more vulnerable? You're not becoming more and more strong, more and more invincible. You're actually becoming more and more vulnerable. Why is that? It's because the human heart latches on to the best things in life, the most amazing experiences you have. So like Nebuchadnezzar, isn't that when you're at work and everything's going for you, right? Everything's going your way. Things are becoming amazing at work. Isn't that when your biggest idol emerges? I think so. So Nebuchadnezzar had the most amazing encounter with God and out of that experience, Literally, a revelation from the living God himself popped out the biggest idol he ever made. The Bible's so true. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? When things are going so well, that's when the idol pops out. So beware. In fact, we need to be doubly aware because although idols are easy to see in others, they're usually very hard to see within ourselves. So that things are going so good for you at work, you're feeling invincible. You're more and more susceptible to idols. This is when the biggest idol of your life emerges, and we tend to not even see it. We tend to not even see it. Let me ask, but out of everyone in Babylon, who do you think was the most blind to what that statue was really about? Who had no clue? I think it was Nebuchadnezzar, the one who made it. Out of everyone in that empire, I think he had the least idea of what this statue was really about. I think all of his governors, officials, wise men probably knew what this statue was really about. I think they probably knew. They probably faked it around him. They were lying through their teeth, but they, they all knew. They knew that Nebuchadnezzar just had a dream where God prophesied the end of his kingdom. God had told him through Daniel, you are the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, but soon another empire is coming after you. And Nebuchadnezzar basically took that and said, no. He defied it. So he made a colossal statue like the one he saw in the dream, except there was a key difference. In the dream, it was only a head of gold and then decreasing metals representing the kingdoms of men. But what did Nebuchadnezzar do? He took that head of gold and he made it the entire statue. And so Bible scholars have pointed this out, but this was a defiance on Nebuchadnezzar's part. He was telling God, no, I'm not gonna come to an end. I'm gonna last until the end of this age, all the way to the toenails. Gold, Babylon, all the way. So this was very, very defiant. And so this colossal statue of gold was nothing more than Nebuchadnezzar's deep insecurity that one day he might lose the kingdom. And it was a desperate attempt to hold on to his power. And I think people in Babylon knew that. I'm sure Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego clearly knew that. But who didn't? Nebuchadnezzar. He probably had all these ideas of what it was. So people are often blind to their own idols. And yet, at the very same time, idols are so very interesting. We are blind to them, especially the ones who have them, and yet they are so easy to identify. They are not hard to spot at all, right? I mean, when Nebuchadnezzar had this idol growing and festering in his heart, and then it finally popped out, it was a 90-foot statue. You can't miss it for miles, right? 
So even though we are blind to them, they are very easy to spot. People wear their idols on their sleeves. They hang them up on their walls. They turn them into gigantic statues. You know, several years ago, I remember my family and I, we went to this trip on, uh, to Colorado. It was a hearing camp, a YMCA hearing camp for children with hearing loss. And so we signed up. It was a great family trip. We drove out to Colorado. And on that trip, we had to drive through Las Vegas. And I think my kids, they might remember. <laughs> but as we were driving down the freeway through Las Vegas, suddenly a flash of light blinded us. We're like, whoa, what is this brilliant light coming into our car? And then as we got closer, we looked at the building over, and it was like this citadel rising from the, the ground of the desert. And it was this tower of glass. And then as we got closer and closer, you know what we saw? Blazed along the top of that building were the words Trump. It was the Trump Hotel. <laughs> and so this was an amazing monument to Trump himself. And so what am I saying? People's idols are not hard to see, right? They're obvious. Okay, people build enormous monuments to themselves. And yet they are blind to them. And yet they're very obvious to others. And so as we are growing in our success, as we are advancing in our work, we are becoming more and more vulnerable to idolatry. We may be blind, but I want to encourage you guys. But if you are willing to look, if you're willing to hear the word of God, then you can spot them as well. You can't miss it. They're going to be gigantic. They're going to be grotesque. But like Nebuchadnezzar's statue, the idol in his heart became this grotesque monstrosity. And idols in people's lives tend to be the same way in our lives as well. Even though we are blind to them, you can spot them, and I'll show you how. I'll tell you how. They often produce outsized, distorted things in our lives, like outsized, distorted emotions, outsized, distorted joys, passions, obsessions. I mean, they're going to be so grotesque. They're so out of proportion. You know, I remember uh, last year, my family and I, was it this year, I think? We were watching FIFA. Was it this year? I think FIFA was this year, right? But we were watching uh, the World Cup at Qatar, and my kids and I, we really got into it. We had a really good time. But they made uh, flags representing each of the nations and their soccer teams, and they even made this huge chart where they would track the, the winning teams and the losing teams. And I remember while watching these games, okay, you guys know what I'm talking about, but when a team would win, we literally saw, it was almost kind of like, whoa, what's going on? But this guy would just rip off his shirt, and then he had painted nipples, and he's just like, ah, right? And then when the team would lose, I mean, the camera would zoom in, right? They would find these people. And we saw grown men just sobbing uncontrollably like a blubbering mess. I mean, that's grotesque. That's way out of proportion. Amen? I mean, that is outsized joy, outsized sadness, way out of proportion. What is that? That's idolatry. Again, the people in it, they can't spot it. But for others, very easy, very easy to see. And for people at work, it looks no different. It's very much the same. It's usually an outsized ambition, all out of proportion. Okay, working 80 hours, but that's not enough. I'm going to work on the holidays as well. No, I'm going to pick up more work on this weekend. I mean, what's going on? Or an out-of-size fear. What's going on at work? Oh, nothing. How's your boss? Oh, he's wonderful. How do you feel? Oh, I'm so afraid. I have this terrible fear. I mean, it's just totally out of proportion to the actual situation. And so people even have terms for this irrational fear. Many of you have even shared anxiety, anxiety at work. Some of it is very legitimate. Others, it's, it's not as legitimate. But anxiety that begins to balloon bigger and bigger, way out of proportion. 
So these are usually the indicators that there might be an idol. There's an idol. Something good has become ultimate. And the threat of losing it, fear, right? Anxiety. The promise of getting it, joy, passion, ambition, all blown out of proportion. So what is standing out in your work, right? What is out of proportion in your work? So this is the nature of idols, but they do far more than just stick out. They do far more than just replace God. But they threaten. They are a great danger. And so this is our next point. But the danger of idols, look at verse 6 through 7. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So Nebuchadnezzar's idol was not only there for people to admire, for them to be inspired, but his idol demanded worship. It demanded the worship of the people. And so here we see the first danger of idols because they demand our worship. Another way of saying it is they enslave and capture our hearts. They demand that our hearts worship it. And the Bible is filled with warnings against this. But Jeremiah 2.25, but you said, it's no use. I love foreign gods. I must go after them. Jeremiah was warning the Israelites. This is what you're saying. I love foreign gods. I must go after them. Romans 1.25, people worship and serve their idols. The Apostle Paul. People worship and serve their idols. And right there, that language is the language of slave and master. The Bible is very clear. Did you know the Bible is a very unique book in the sense that it's one of the few books, if not the only book, that really talks about idolatry throughout, all throughout. And any other religious text that talks about it just mimics the Bible, like, like Islam or Mormonism. But the Bible is unique in this. It is filled continuously from beginning to end, Old and New Testament, warning against idolatry. It is a danger. And here's why. It's because even though idols are just created things, they enslave us. We must serve them. They are our masters. That's the language of scripture. They are the master. We are the slave of these idols. But why? But why, right? How can a bank account or a career become my master? Well, again, it goes back to the heart. But the human heart was created to know God and worship God. Amen? And we were created to draw nourishment for our souls from God. Things like love, peace, meaning, identity, and yet that nourishment has been cut off. All have sinned, falling short of the glory of God. And because we've been cut off, like an umbilical cord that's been severed, there is now no longer nourishment coming to our souls. And again, when I say nourishment, I'm talking about things like purpose, meaning, peace, joy, hope, love, fulfillment, the things that we can only truly and fully find in God. And so the heart, because it's been cut off from God, goes searching. Okay, like a starving man who's dying of starvation, searching for food. The heart's constantly searching. This is all of us, brothers and sisters. This is every single person you're going to meet tomorrow morning at work. But the heart is constantly searching. And so here's what happens. Okay, I'm just going to break it down in terms of the, the most simplest steps. But first, a person experiences a good thing. A person experiences something good and it nourishes his soul temporarily. And then he wants to control that good thing. At that point, he turns that good thing into an idol. See, idolatry is always about control. So like a golden goose, they look to that good thing that provided this nourishment. It could have been love, fulfillment, meaning, 
identity. And now they see that thing as a golden goose. I'm going to continue to get this thing from that. So he wants to control this thing in order to nourish his soul continuously. And then third, eventually he becomes controlled by that good thing. So first, he experiences a good thing, then he wants to control that good thing, and then eventually he becomes controlled by that good thing. In other words, his heart is enslaved. So the promise of nourishment from that thing ultimately captured his heart. And so this is happening all the time, everywhere, quietly, effortlessly. It's happening wherever you go, anyone you meet. It's always happening at work, at school, at church, at home. So what do I mean by these steps? Well, for example, a child, for example, might receive approval from her, her parents because she brought home a good report card, right? Yeah, I, I, I didn't do that that often when I was growing up, but, but occasionally I would bring home a very good report card to my parents. And there's such a great feeling you get. You get nourished in your soul. Your parents are looking at you beaming with pride. They might even buy you something, right? Take you out for McDonald's, whatever. And so in that moment, you get affirmed. That aff- affirmation is real. It is nourishing to your soul. Or maybe there's a woman who receives affection from the men around her. Why? Because of her beauty. She's a beautiful woman. She gets affection from men. And so that affection is real. I mean, it nourishes her soul. Or maybe there's a man who is applauded at work because he is extremely diligent. I mean, to the extreme. He will always work the extra hours. And so what happens? He gets applause. He gets noticed. And again, that is nourishing to his soul. That is real. That's not to be denied. That is real. And in that moment, it's the most subtle thing that happens. But the, the heart goes, I want more. I need more. Because they're cut off from the living God. They don't get this from the living God. So I want more. I need more. I want it on demand. So they try to control that thing that brought the nourishment. Whether it was affirmation, affection, applause. They want more of that. They desperately need it. So they try to control their graves in order to keep getting affirmation from mom and dad, right? I better study. I better study. I better not go out with friends. Now, don't get me wrong. You should study, right? Don't go out with your friends too much. But, but it's like, I, I better make this my life, right? Straight A's. A minus? Terror. Horror, right? It's like, I better get straight A's. They try to control their beauty. Increasingly, more and more elaborate, more and more expensive procedures to stay beautiful. Why? To keep getting that affection. Right? Working harder and harder, more and more hours, more and more hours. Why? To get applause at work. So you understand. Over time, these good things now have become ultimate things. And now their hope, their trust is in that. They value them more than anything. And now it's worship. Okay, that, that's how the heart begins to worship. Now you are worshiping it. And again, everything is out of proportion. Okay, this is how you get workaholics who literally miss all of their kids' baseball games and recitals literally miss everything. Why? Because dad is somewhere else worshiping. He's literally worshiping. And here's what's so wicked about idols. So this is the way idols work in our hearts. And here's what's so wicked. They never say enough, right? They never say enough. They will always ask for more. And yet, even as it keeps asking for more, 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 keep coming to me, more, more, they never deliver. Ultimately, they never give you what they promise. And the Bible is filled with warnings of this as well. Isaiah 45, 20. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. But they keep coming back. Because idols never, they never deliver. 
Someone said it like this, but idols will always break your heart. It's true. Idols will always break your heart. Psalm 16, 4, the sorrows of those who run after another guy shall multiply. David said that. David understood that. If you go after another God, if there is an idol you are worshiping, your sorrows will multiply. Idols will always break your heart. So idols are wicked things. They are extremely dangerous to our souls. And they are also dangerous because they multiply sin. Because of this one idol in our lives, it's kind of like the, oops, it's kind of like the spider that keeps producing all the cobwebs in your garage, but you never seem to be able to like find out what, where is this coming from? Well, it's the idol. The idol is the spider. And so idols, whether they're like spiders or cancer cells, they rarely just stay there. Okay, they're not inert things, but they mutate, they multiply. One idol splits into two idols, two idols mutate back into one idol and then split into four. I mean, they're just grotesque things. Your heart just doesn't know what to do with all these things. And then as they mutate and multiply, they spread out and they form other sins. You know, Martin Luther famously said, you never break commandments 9 through 10 unless you break the first commandment. I remember hearing that often when I was going through seminary, but it's so true. But the reason why God made the first commandment, you shall have no other gods, is because if you break that one, you will break all the other ones. So you better keep commandment number one. And Luther was very insightful, very correct. So for example, if you lie at work, because you want to get credit for a project, in that moment, as that lie is coming out of your mouth, what is happening? You are worshiping an idol. There is an idol in your heart. You are putting your hope, your trust in something more than God. That's why that lie is coming out, and you're lying about how much work you did or how you did all the work. And so what, what could it be? It could be approval from your boss, maybe feeling significant, your identity is there maybe getting that promotion at your next review because you need to get more pay and more pay and more pay. So that's why we sin. See, the idols are underneath all these other sins. They are the, I call them the mother of sins because one idol can literally give birth to a thousand different sins. And so idols are extremely dangerous and if these are not dealt with swiftly, they can even cause people to kill. And that's no exaggeration. You know, I remember hearing many years ago that the most dangerous task of a pastor is to touch people's idols. And I've, I've experienced that, not, not to a great degree, but occasionally, you know, when I meet with people and then we kind of get deep into something and then they start getting more and more bothered by the things I'm saying and then they get really angry, guaranteed is always because I started touching an idol. <laughs> very, very dangerous. The most dangerous task of anyone is to touch a person's idol. Because you touch that, you touch the core of everything for them. Right? The core of everything. They don't say it, but this is what I worship. This is my hope. Are you kidding me? You're telling me to let this go? This is my, my life. This is my trust. So you touch people's idols, they will first evade you, then they might falsely accuse you, then they will attack you, and then some will even kill you. They will. They will kill you. It says twice in Daniel 3, 12 through 13, that Nebuchadnezzar was furious with rage. Right, he says that. So there are certain Jews among you who have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you and your stupid idol, right? They don't care about your idol. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that they be brought before him. 
So they brought these men before the king. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. And eventually he made his plans clear. I'm going to kill you. You've dismissed my idol. I will kill you. You know, I remember a few years ago, my parents and I were talking about this Korean-American man living right here in SoCal. And I believe he was a Christian. He went to a church nearby, was involved. But he ended up killing his coworker over a business deal. So maybe some of you have heard of this story. But I remember I was talking about this story with my parents. And the reason why is because he had the last same name, the same last name as me, as us. And my dad really didn't like that. He's like, he's not a part of our family, right? But he had the same last name. But to me, that was such a clear example of how could that man, even a Christian man, get to the point of killing his coworker over a business deal? Well, it was an idol. I don't want to make it so simple like that, but it was. He had an idol. And somewhere, in some way, that idol began to get touched. And so he killed. So idols, they are dangerous. And idols, they always begin in private, but eventually they always go public, always. So again, think about Nebuchadnezzar. Here he is laying on his bed. This idol is in his heart, his own glory, his majesty. It began to grow. He got this dream from God. He subtly twisted that into his idol. And then that little idol on his bed, in his heart, turned into what? A grotesque statue, a gigantic statue that affected everyone. So idols rarely stay private but they will eventually go public. They will spread and affect others. If you're married, it will affect your marriage. If you have children, it will affect your children. If you're part of a community, it will affect your community, your church, your city, your nation. There are idols over entire nations even. One clearly over America is mammon, clearly. People worship money. Democrat, Republican, conservative, progressive, doesn't matter, everyone worships it, clearly even Christians in America. And so it always goes public. So we're coming to a close. Then what can we do? Well, there's the shattering of idols. We must shatter them. So Daniel 2, 34 through 35, we're gonna close with this. But I love this. I love how the word of God just affirms, one passage affirms another passage. I, I love this. But as we're looking at this terrible, grotesque idol that Nebuchadnezzar set up, affecting the whole kingdom, all along, the answer to that idol is in the previous chapter. Because that statue that Nebuchadnezzar erected was in the image of the exact statue he dreamt about. And in that dream, what happened to that statue in that dream? What happened? I'll tell you. Chapter 2, verse 34. And as you looked, O king, a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on his feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So the answer is right there. But God said, by my hand and by, by the coming of my kingdom, I will shatter all the idols of all the empires in this world. So the shattering of that statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream was not just the empires going away, but it was all the idolatry, all the unrighteousness and sin of those empires being shattered. So what's the answer, brothers and sisters? How do we remove these idols from our lives? It is the gospel. It is the gospel story of his kingdom. And so as we begin to understand what God has done in Jesus Christ and begin to identify these idols 
and then apply the gospel, then these idols, one by one, will be removed. They will be shattered. So briefly, we must identify and then repent and then believe in Christ if we're gonna remove and shatter these idols. But the first thing is identify, and I already mentioned that earlier, but you must identify what are these idols? Okay, what, what are the areas in your life that are grotesque and way out of proportion? Okay, look for the out of proportion joys and out of proportion anxieties and sadnesses in your life. Okay, what, why am I so sad or so happy? The out of proportion ambitions in your life. Like what, what is going on? Why am I reacting so strongly here? Usually it's because of an idol. Okay, what, what is it in your life that gives you nightmares like Nebuchadnezzar? Okay, that's probably an idol. I have some recurring nightmares. I'm not gonna share it with you right now, but, but they're probably coming from an idol. Okay, well, what are the things that you cannot live without? Okay, I must have this thing. That's probably an idol. That's an idol. And so you must first identify them. Once you've identified them, you must repent of them. Okay, you must specifically, by name, confess them to the Lord. Lord, please forgive me. I'm a sinner. I've taken this creative thing from your good creation. It could be my spouse, it could be my children, it could be this job you gave me, and I've turned it into an ultimate thing. You must confess it by name. Lord, forgive me. From this thing, I have put all my hope and I have put all my trust to get things like righteousness, security, peace, joy, purpose, meaning in life. Lord, everything I should be receiving from you, I have been trying to get from this thing. This is my golden goose. Confess it directly. Acknowledge how deadly they are. Lord, because of this idol, there are countless other sins coming out of my life. Lord, I confess all these sins before you because of this idol. And all the different people, it's affected because they never stay private, right? They always go public. Lord, please forgive me. And then after that, the final glorious step is believe in Christ. And what that means is not just, oh, I believe Jesus is God and I'm a Christian, but Lord, Whatever specific nourishment I was trying to get from that idol, Lord, you give me. And so maybe you can go through the scriptures and go through all the I am statements. Jesus said, I am the door. I'm the way to God. I am the bread of life. I will feed you. I am the living water. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the salt of the earth. You name it. I am the great shepherd. But everything that I have desired from you, I will get, or desire from the idol, I will now get from you. And so that is this very specific belief in Christ. And so we do that. And as you do that, not just once, but repeatedly, one by one, these idols, they come down. They will come crashing down. They will be shattered. And once these idols are now coming down in your life, you can now do what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. And we're truly coming to a close. Okay, this is gonna be next week. We'll talk more about this, but this is amazing. But once these idols start coming down in your life, you cannot bow. Amen? And many of you have been bowing. Yeah, I've bowed. We've been bowing to the idols in our workplace, in our culture, in our individual lives. We've been bowing. But for the first time, we cannot bow. We will not bow. And so this scene in Daniel 3 is amazing. But the Bible's clear. There was a sea of people in front of this idol on the plain of Dura. It wasn't just the governors and the leaders in the palace. It was everybody, all the citizenry. I mean, it was a sea of people. Hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of people were gathered. And then at the sound of the bagpipe and the lyre, and I didn't know they had bagpipes in Babylon, but, you know, all these instruments, everyone 
like a wave of humanity began to bow one after another, like a wave. Just imagine this in your mind. I'd love to see it in a movie one day. And then as everybody was bowing down, far in the distance, so far away, Nebuchadnezzar missed it. His officials had to tell him. But far in the distance, you could barely see it, but there were three little figures standing alone. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, lone figures who would not bow. Amen? They wouldn't bow. And so we're going to look at this more next week, but oftentimes, do you know when will be the first time your faith goes public at work? Do you know when you're going to go public with your faith at work? And many of us aren't, right? That's the reality. I used to work, you know, out in the secular world, and, you know, I would keep it a secret sometimes. But do you know when it is? It's not when you show up to work with a megaphone in your bag and you're waiting for that moment to pull out your megaphone and start like shouting, you know, judgments on the sin here. I know some of you guys, maybe you want to do that, but that, that's not when your faith goes public, right? It's not when you first sit down at your desk and start shooting off a dozen tweets to your coworkers about Jesus and Bible verses. That's not when it goes public. Do you know when your faith will most likely go public in the workplace, in your schools, out there in the community? Is when everyone is bowing and you do not. Amen? There's a sea of humanity bowing. We worship these things. These things are ultimate for us. And you're like, no. It's going to be very awkward. But in that moment, your faith went public. And the only reason is because you have the gospel of the kingdom that has shattered these idols in your heart. Amen? And we're going to pick up next week and we're going to look at that. So let's, let's bow before the Lord. We will bow before him. But Father God, we worship you, Lord. We, you are awesome, God. You're such an amazing God. Lord, let us be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel. Let us be like these young men, barely, barely in their 20s, perhaps still teenagers, Lord. And yet they knew you, the living God, and they knew the gospel of your kingdom. And so they did not bow. And so, Lord God, in the same way, Lord, help us. Lord, we are idol worshipers. Your word is clear, Lord. All of humanity, it is the sin of humanity. In the Old Testament, it was the sin of Israel. And now in the New Testament, it is the sin of humanity. We are all idolaters. Forgive us, Lord. And for some of us here, perhaps for the first time, we will not bow. Perhaps for the first time, we will be freed of these idols through the gospel of your grace. So we thank you so much, Father.